section thirty one of light science for leisure hours this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. light science for leisure hours by richard a proctor a new theory of achilles shield a distinguished classical authority has remarked that the description of achilles shield occupies an anomalous position in homer's iliad on the one hand it is easy to show that the poem for the description may be looked on as a complete poem is out of place in the iliad on the other it is no less easy to show that homer has carefully led up to the description of the shield by a series of introductory events i propose to examine briefly the evidence on each of these points and then to exhibit a theory respecting the shield which may appear bizarre enough on a first view but which seems to me to be supported by satisfactory evidence an argument commonly urged against the genuineness of the shield of achilles is founded on the length and labored character of the description even grote whose theory is that homer's original poem was not an iliad but an achilles has admitted the force of this argument he finds clear evidence that from book two to book twenty homer has been husbanding his resources for the more effective description of the final conflict he therefore concedes the possibility that the shield of achilles may be an interpolation perhaps the work of another hand it appears to me however that the mere length of the description is no argument against the genuineness of the passage events have indeed been hastening to a crisis up to the end of book seventeen and the action is checked in a marked manner by the oplopeia in book eighteen yet it is quite in homer's manner to introduce between two series of important events an interval of comparative inaction or at least of events wholly different in character from those of either series we have a marked instance of this in books nine and ten here the appeal to achilles and the night adventure of diomed and ulysses are interposed between the first victory of the trojans and the great struggle in which patroclus is slain and agamemnon ulysses diomed machaon and eurypylus wounded in fact one cannot doubt that in such an arrangement homer exhibits admirable taste and judgment the contrast between action and inaction or between the confused tumult of a heady conflict and the subtle advance of the two greek heroes is conceived in the true poetic spirit the dignity and importance of the action and the interest of the interposed events are alike enhanced indeed there is scarcely a noted author whose works do not afford instances of corresponding contrasts how skilfully for example has shakespeare interposed the bald disjointed chat of the sleepy porter between the conscience-wrought horror of duncan's murderers and the horror 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 which tongue nor heart could not conceive nor name of his faithful followers nor will the reader need to be reminded of the frequent and effective use of the contrast between the humorous and the pathetic by others the labored character of the description of the shield is an argument 
though not perhaps a very striking one for the independent origin of the poem but the arguments on which i am disposed to lay most stress lie nearer the surface scarcely any one i think can have read the description of the shield without a feeling of wonder that homer should describe the shield of a mortal hero as adorned with so many and such important objects we find the sun and moon the constellations the waves of ocean and a variety of other objects better suited to adorn the temple of a great deity than the shield of a warrior however noble and heroic the objects depicted even on the aegis of zeus are much less important there is certainly no trace in the iliad of a wish on homer's part to raise the dignity of mortal heroes at the expense of zeus yet the aegis is thus succinctly described fringed round with ever-fighting snakes though it was drawn to life the miseries and deaths of fight in it frowned bloody strife in it shone sacred fortitude in it fell pursuit flew in it the monster gorgon's head in which held out to view were all the dire ostents of jove chapman's translation five lines here as in the original suffice for the description of jove's aegis while one hundred and thirty lines are employed in the description of the celestial and terrestrial objects depicted on the shield of achilles another circumstance attracts notice in the description of achilles armor the disproportionate importance attached to the shield undoubtedly the shield was that portion of a hero's armor which admitted of the freest application of artistic skill yet this consideration is not sufficient to account for the fact that while so many lines are given to the shield the helmet corselet and greaves are disposed of in four but the argument on which i am inclined to lay most stress is the occurrence elsewhere of a description which is undoubtedly only another version of the shield of achilles the shield of hercules occurs in a poem ascribed to hesiod but whatever opinion may be formed respecting the authorship of the description there can be no doubt that it is not hesiod's work it exhibits no trace of his dry didactic somewhat heavy style elton ascribes the shield of hercules to an imitator of homer and in support of this view points out those respects in which the poem resembles and those in which it is inferior to the shield of achilles the two descriptions are however absolutely identical in many places and this would certainly not have happened if one had been an honest imitation of the other and those parts of the shield of hercules which have no counterparts in the shield of achilles are too well conceived and expressed to be ascribed to a very inferior poet a poet so inferior as to be reduced to the necessity of simply reproducing homer's words in other parts of the poem those parts which admit of comparison where for instance the same objects are described but in different terms are certainly inferior in the shield of hercules the description is injured by the addition of unnecessary or inharmonious details elton speaks accordingly of these portions as if they were expansions of the corresponding parts of the shield of achilles this appears to me a mistake 
it seems far more likely that both descriptions are by the same poet it is not necessary for the support of my theory that this poet should be homer but i think both descriptions show undoubted traces of his handiwork indeed all known imitations of homer are so easily recognizable as the work of inferior poets that i should have thought no doubt could exist on this point but for the attention which the german theory respecting the iliad has received assigning both poems to homer the shield of hercules may be regarded not as an expansion in parts of the shield of achilles but as an earlier work of homer's improved and pruned by his maturer judgment when he desired to fit it into the plan of the iliad or rather each poem may be looked on as an abridgment the shield of hercules the earlier of an independent work on a subject presently to be mentioned it is next to be shown that in the events preceding the oplopia there is a preparation for the introduction of a separate poem in the first place every reader of homer is familiar with the fact that the poet constantly makes use when occasion serves of expressions sentences often even of complete passages which have been already applied in a corresponding or occasionally even in a wholly different relation the same epithets are repeatedly applied to the same deity or hero a long message is delivered in the very words which have been already used by the sender of the message in one well-known instance in book two not only is a message delivered thus but the person who has received it repeats it to others in precisely the same terms in the combat between hector and ajax book six the flight of ajax's spear and the movement by which hector avoids the missile are described in six lines differing only as to proper names from those which had been already used in describing the encounter between paris and menelaus book three this peculiarity would be a decided blemish in a written poem tennyson indeed occasionally copies homer's manner for instance in enid he twice repeats the line as careful robins eye the delver's toil but with a good taste which prevents the repetition from becoming offensive the fact is that the peculiarity marks homer as the singer not the writer of poetry i would not be understood as accepting the theory according to which the iliad is a mere string of ballads i imagine that no one who justly appreciates that noble poem would be willing to countenance such a theory but that the whole poem was sung by homer at those prolonged festivals which formed a characteristic peculiarity of achaean manners seems shown not only by what we learn respecting the later rhapsodists but by the internal evidence of the poem itself homer reciting a long and elaborate poem of his own composition occasionally varying the order of events or adding new episodes extemporized as the song proceeded would exhibit the peculiarity invariably observed in the improvisatore of using more than once expressions sentences or passages which happened to be conveniently applicable the art of extemporizing depends on the capacity for composing fresh matter 
while the tongue is engaged in the recital of matter already composed anyone who has watched a clever improvisatore cannot fail to have noticed that though gesture is aptly wedded to words the thoughts are elsewhere in the case therefore of an improvisatore or even of a rhapsodist reciting from memory the occasional recurrence of a well-worn form of words serves as a relief to the strained invention or memory we have reason then for supposing that if homer had in his earlier days composed a poem which was applicable with slight alterations to the story of the iliad he would endeavor by a suitable arrangement of the plan of his narrative to introduce the lines whose recital had long since become familiar to him evidence of design in the introduction of the shield of achilles certainly does not seem wanting it is by no means necessary to the plot of the iliad that achilles should lose the celestial armor given to peleus as a dowry with thetis on the contrary homer has gone out of his way to render the labors of vulcan necessary patroclus has to be so ingeniously disposed of that while the armor he had worn is seized by hector his body is rescued as are also the horses and chariot of achilles we have the additional improbability that the armor of the great achilles should fit the inferior warriors patroclus and hector indeed that the armor should fit hector or rather that hector should fit the armor the aid of zeus and ares has to be called in to this jove's sable brows did bow and he made fit his limbs to those great arms to fill which up the war-god entered him austere and terrible his joints and every part extends with strength and fortitude chapman's translation it is clear that the narrative would not have been impaired in any way while its probability and consistency would have been increased if patroclus had fought in his own armor the death of patroclus would in any case have been a cause sufficient to arouse the wrath of achilles against hector though certainly the hero's grief for his armor is nearly as poignant as his sorrow for his friend it appears probable then that the description of achilles shield is an interpolation the poet's own work however and brought in by him in the only way he found available the description clearly refers to the same object which is described here also only in part in the shield of hercules the original description doubtless included all that is found in both shields and probably much more what then was the object to which the original description applied an object i should think far more important than a warrior's shield i imagine that anyone who should read the description without being aware of its accepted interpretation would consider that the poet was dealing with an important series of religious sculptures possibly that he was describing the dome of a temple adorned with celestial and terrestrial symbols in egypt there are temples of a vast antiquity having a dome on which a zodiac or more correctly a celestial hemisphere is sculptured with constellation figures and we now learn from ancient babylonian and assyrian sculptures 
that these Egyptian zodiacs are in all probability merely copies, more or less perfect, of yet more ancient Chaldean zodiacs. One of these Babylonian sculptures is figured in Rawlinson's Ancient Monarchies. It seems probable that in a country where Sabianism or star worship was the prevailing form of religion, yet more imposing proportions would be given to such zodiacs than in Egypt. My theory, then, respecting the shield of Achilles, is this. I conceive that Homer, in his eastern travels, visited imposing temples devoted to astronomical observation and star worship, and that nearly every line in both shields is borrowed from a poem in which he described a temple of this sort, its domed zodiac, and those illustrations of the labors of different seasons and of military or judicial procedures, which the astrological proclivities of star worshippers led them to associate with the different constellations. I think there are arguments of some force to be urged in support of this theory, fanciful as it may seem at a first view. In the first place, it is necessary that the constellations recognized in Homer's time, not necessarily or probably by Homer, should be distinguished from later inventions. Aratus, writing long after Homer's date, mentions 45 constellations. These were probably derived, without exception, from the globe of Eudoxus. Remembering the tendency which astronomers have shown in all ages to add to the list of constellations, we may assume that, in Homer's time, the number was smaller. Probably there were some fifteen northern and ten southern constellations besides the twelve zodiacal signs. The smaller constellations mentioned by Aratus doubtless formed parts of larger figures. Anyone who studies the heavens will recognize the fact that the larger constellations have been robbed of their just proportions to form the smaller asterisms. Corona Borealis was the right arm of Boots. Ursa Minor was a wing of Draco, now wingless and no longer a dragon, and so on. Secondly, it is necessary that the actual appearance of the heavens, with reference to the position of the pole in Homer's time, should be indicated. For my present purpose, it is not necessary that we should know the exact date at which the most ancient of the zodiac temples were constructed, or to which they were made to correspond. There are good reasons, though this is not the proper place for dwelling upon them, for supposing that the great epoch of reference amongst ancient astronomers preceded the Christian era by about 2200 years. Be this as it may, any epoch between the date named and the probable date at which Homer flourished, say nine or ten centuries before the Christian era, will serve equally well for my present purpose. Now, if the effects of equinoctial precession be traced back to such a date, we are led to notice two singular and not uninteresting circumstances. First, the pole of the heavens fell in the central part of the great constellation Draco, and secondly, the equator fell along the length of the great sea serpent Hydra in one part of its course, and elsewhere to the north of all the ancient aquatic constellations, save that 
one half of the northernmost fish of the zodiac pair lay north of the equator thus if a celestial sphere were constructed with the equator in a horizontal position the dragon would be at the summit hydra would be extended horizontally along the equator but with his head and neck reared above that circle and argo cetus capricornus piscis australis and pisces save one half of the northernmost would lie below the equator it may also be mentioned that all the bird constellations were then as now clustered together not far from the equator cygnus the farthest from the equator being ten degrees or so nearer to that circle than at present now let us turn to the two shields and see whether there is anything to connect them with zodiac temples or to remind us of the relations exhibited above to commence with the shield of achilles the opening lines inform us that the shield showed the starry lights that heaven's high convex crowned the pleiads hyads with the northern team and great orion's more refulgent beam and here in achilles shield the list of constellations closes but it is remarkable that in the shield of hercules while the above lines are wanting we find lines which clearly point to other constellations remembering what has just been stated about draco it seems at the least a singular coincidence that we should find the center or boss of the shield occupied by a dragon the scaly horror of a dragon coiled full in the central field unspeakable with eyes oblique retorted that a slant shot gleaming flame elton's translation we seem also to find a reference to the above-named relations of the aquatic constellations and specially to the constellation pisces in the midst full many dolphins chased the fry and showed as though they swam the waters to and fro darting tumultuous too of silver scale panting above the wave for we learn from both shields that the waves of ocean were figured in a position corresponding with the above-mentioned position of the celestial equator beneath which that is in the ocean on our assumption the aquatic constellations were figured the description of the ocean in the shield of hercules contains also some lines in which we seem to see a reference to the bird constellations close above the equator rounding the utmost verge the ocean flowed as in full swell of waters and the shield all variegated with whole circle bound swans of high hovering wing there clamoured shrill who also skimmed the breasted surge with plume innumerous near them fishes midst the waves frolicked in wanton bounds in the shield of achilles no mention is made of perseus but in the shield of hercules this well-known constellation seems described in the lines there was the knight of fair-haired danae born perseus nor yet the buckler with his feet touched nor yet distant hovered strange to see for nowhere on the surface of the shield he rested so the crippled artist god illustrious framed him with his hands in gold bound to his feet 
were sandals winged a sword of brass with hilt of sable ebony hung round him from the shoulders by a thong the visage grim of monstrous gorgon all his back o'erspread the dreadful helm of pluto clasped the temples of the prince i think that one may recognize a reference to the twins castor and pollux the wrestler and boxer of mythology in the words but in another part were men who wrestled or in gymnic fight wielded the cestus orion is not mentioned by name in the shield of hercules as in the other but orion lepus and the two dogs seem referred to elsewhere men of chase were taking the fleet hares two keen-toothed dogs hounded beside these ardent in pursuit those with like ardor doubling in their flight in each shield we find a reference to the operations of the year hunting and pasturing sowing ploughing and harvesting it is hardly necessary to point out the connection between these operations and astronomical relations that this connection was fully recognized in ancient times is shown in the works and days of hesiod we find also in egyptian zodiacs clear evidence that these operations as well as astronomical symbols or constellations were pictured in sculptured domes the judicial military and other proceedings described in the shield of achilles were also supposed by the ancients to have been influenced by the courses of the stars if there were no evidence that ancient celestial spheres presented the constellations above referred to i might be disposed to attach less weight to the coincidences here presented but the phenomena of aratus affords sufficient testimony on this point in the first place that work is of great antiquity since aratus flourished two centuries and a half before the christian era but it is well known that aratus did not describe the results of his own observations the positions of the constellations as recorded by him accord neither with the date at which he wrote nor with the latitude in which he lived it is generally assumed chiefly on the authority of hipparchus that aratus borrowed his knowledge of astronomy from the sphere of eudoxus but we must go much farther back even than the date of eudoxus before we can find any correspondence between the appearance of the heavens and the description given by aratus thus we may very fairly assume that the origin of the constellations as distinguished from their association with certain circles of the celestial sphere may be placed at a date preceding perhaps by many generations that at which homer flourished indeed there have not been wanting those who find in the ancient constellations the record of the early history of man according to their views orion is nimrod the giant as the arabic name of the constellation implies the mighty hunter as the dogs and hare beside him signify the centaur bearing a victim towards the altar is noah argo the stern of a ship is the ark as of old it might be seen on mount ararat corvus is the crow sent forth by noah and the bird is placed on hydra's back to show that there was no land on which it could set its foot 
the figure now called hercules but of old engonison or the kneeler and described by aratus as a man doomed to labor is adam his left foot treads on the dragon's head in token of the saying it shall bruise thy head and serpentarius or the serpent bearer is the promised seed of course if we accept these views we have no difficulty in understanding that a poet so ancient as homer should refer to the constellations which still appear upon celestial spheres and in any case the mere question of antiquity presents as we have already shown little difficulty but there is one difficulty a notice of which must close this paper already carried far beyond the limits i had proposed to myself it may be thought remarkable that heroes of greek mythology as perseus and orion should be placed by homer or even by aratus in spheres which are undoubtedly of eastern origin now it may be remarked first of homer that many acute critics consider the whole story of the iliad to be in reality merely an adaptation of an eastern narrative to greek scenes and names it is pointed out that whereas the catalogue in book two reckons upwards of one hundred thousand men only ten thousand fought at marathon and whereas there are counted no less than twelve hundred ships in the catalogue there were but two hundred seventy one at artemisium and at salamis but three hundred seventy eight however this may be we have the distinct evidence of herodotus that the greek mythology was derived originally from foreign sources he says all the names of the gods in greece were brought from egypt an opinion in which diodorus and other eminent authorities concur but it is the opinion of acute modern critics that we must go beyond egyptian to assyrian or indian perhaps even to hebrew sources for the origin of greek mythology layard has ascribed to niebuhr the following significant remarks there is a want in grecian art which neither i nor any man now alive can supply there is not enough in egypt to account for the peculiar art and the peculiar mythology which we find in greece that the egyptians did not originate it i am convinced though neither i nor any man now alive can say who were the originators but the time will come when on the borders of the tigris and euphrates those who come after me will live to see the origin of grecian art and grecian mythology from the student june eighteen sixty eight end of section thirty one recording by linda johnson end of light science for leisure hours by Richard A. Proctor